0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The 26th Conference of Parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, better known as COP26, kicks off in Glasgow, Scotland on the 31st of October and is scheduled to last until November 12. This is a major moment in international climate diplomacy and the most significant climate change meeting since the Paris Agreement was reached in 2015. Under the terms of the Paris Agreement, countries were to reconvene every five years and these meetings were to be moments in which countries would scale up their ambitions and take further action to limit global warming to well under 2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels by 2030. The backbone of the Paris Agreement are what is known as the Nationally Determined Contributions, the NDCs. This is each country's domestic action plan on climate, And as of now, these NDCs collectively do not put us on target to reach that Paris Agreement goal, hence the need for better targets and more action. That is what COP26 is intended to achieve. On the line with me to offer a preview of what to expect from this major UN climate meeting is Pete Ogden, Vice President for Energy, Climate, and the Environment at the United Nations Foundation. He is a veteran of many previous COPs, and in our conversation, he discusses the key issues up for negotiation in Glasgow and the broader geopolitics of climate change diplomacy. This includes a deep dive into how both China and the United States are approaching COP26 and the thorny question of climate finance, that is, how wealthier countries can financially support poorer countries as they adapt to climate change and seek to grow their economies in ways that are not harmful to the environment. I think you will appreciate this conversation. I know I found it to be a very helpful curtain raiser to COP26 in Glasgow. And if you will be there in Glasgow, send me a note, hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or send me an email using the contact button on com. Let me know what's going on, what you're seeing, the moon on the ground. Anything. I suspect many of you listening will actually be there, will be participating in the negotiations or on the sidelines in one way or the other. So do reach out to me. I'd appreciate it. All right. Now here is my conversation with Pete Ogden of the United Nations Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Why is this COP different from all other COPs?
1: Well, this is often described as the most important COP since the Paris Agreement. And the reason for that has to do actually with the Paris Agreement itself. when, When countries reach that agreement, they all set national carbon reduction targets, greenhouse gas reduction targets for themselves. And for the period for 2030, some countries, actually U.S. did 2025, but the idea was that, the, that there was going to be an initial set of, of commitments. Those commitments were not going to get to the goal of the agreement, which is to limit global temperature rise to well below two degrees and, and to aim for 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. But the idea was that there was, it was the first step. And that every five years, so uh, that was in 2015, so in 2020, then 2025, countries would come back together, reassess the adequacy of their existing targets and and upgrade them, update them uh, to to bring us increasingly in line with the ultimate objective of the agreement and then ideally to nail it. 2020 was, of course, supposed to be the year when everyone was going to come together and do this because of... uh, COVID 2021 is the new 2020, and everybody, countries sort of got an extra year to to go through this process to figure this out. This is the end of that process and the first real check on how countries are doing to to, to make the the Paris Agreement function and and achieve, achieve its objectives.
0: To what extent is the outcome of Glasgow already baked in? I mean, you have many countries who have already submitted their enhanced and revised naturally determined contributions, those NDCs that make up the backbone of the Paris Agreement. Uh, so don't we sort of already know what countries are bringing to the table?
1: Yeah. I mean, this, this is part of what makes this an, uh, an interesting and tricky COP. It's the biggest you know COP since the Paris Agreement, but it's entirely different situation, because the Paris Agreement was a negotiation, right? I mean, you, countries are coming together to finalize, you know, some words on the page, and they're either going to come out with an agreement that they all, the whole, you know, every, every member party uh, could agree to, and that would be success, or they wouldn't, and there would be failure. Here, as you say, we're in the midst of a much more rolling, dynamic process of implementation. Countries have been at their own time and in their own way, already increasing their NDCs over the course of the last five years. I mean, you know, the Europeans recently, or not so recently now, you know, a year ago, uh, were were well on their way towards setting uh, a new NDC for themselves. President Biden last April announced that the U.S. had established a, a new NDC for itself. And China itself has also submitted an NDC. So, you know, that is a dynamic process. But that's only a piece of what then constitutes this COP outcome. Because for countries to come together in Glasgow, what they need at the end of the day is to rally around a whole package of outcomes, of which this is a piece of it. So, one will be is there a sort of sense among countries that the NDC process, that countries have kind of lived up to it? So, this is going to be kind of a political moment of self-reckoning. Um, they're gonna, they're gonna take stock of, of where we are face up to the shortfall and have to give some sort of sense about how they collectively see and are going to reconcile with that discrepancy going forward. Um, but there's also other elements to the Paris Agreement that are going to be very live uh, and part of this broader package of outcomes. And that and 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 chief among those is the question of, of climate finance which is the the funding that developed countries had committed to provide to developing countries to help with their transition to uh, a clean and more resilient uh, and sustainable economies uh, initially back in in 2009 uh, a, a pledge was made it was then it was then enshrined in the Paris agreement uh, and one of the big challenges for this cop is going to be reckoning with the fact that developed countries have not made good on that initial finance commitment. And that commitment
0: was for a hundred billion dollars a year. uh, And we are nowhere near that. And, you know, I've heard other analysts explain that, you know, this pledge on making good on that commitment on climate finance is really like a geopolitical linchpin uh, for the outcome of climate negotiations writ large, because it's what will bring the rapidly developing world on board.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, it's, a, it's a huge piece again of the overall uh, uh, package here, because so, so just to just say a little bit more about that. So the, the commitment is specifically for developed countries to mobilize uh, from public and private sources 100 billion dollars annually from 2020 through 2025 in this period. The we we are not there, uh, and the developed countries are, and frankly, to their credit, not pretending otherwise. There there is a we're essentially at about 80 billion dollars uh, as of last accounting. And the hope is, and what the developed countries have rallied around recently is a projection based on a whole bunch of new commitments for future contributions made by the United States and other developed countries uh, to put us back on a trajectory to meeting it. And that and that the OECD now calculates that we will we will be able to get close, you know, closer to that threshold next year, surpass it in 23 and 24 and and so on so uh one of the big kind of questions of course for this cop is how you know how is that how is this received by developing countries are they going to find this you know persuasive having having been failed to date are they going to see this as a credible way forward some countries are developing countries are calling for uh sort of a, a payment of arrears as if you know developed countries would 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 pledge to make up the shortfall in future years. I think what you've seen from the developed country uh, plan that I referenced, there is no sort of agreement on any kind of formal arrears payment, but they do project surpassing $100 in 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 coming years. And so that might materially uh, be one of the same. And so how, how countries feel about that, um, is going to be a huge thing that helps to shape the dynamics here. And and the other thing you think about it, is this: this is not this is not money and funding that goes to finance the major economies, right? This is not money that's going to go to to you know to China. This is this is really targeting developing countries uh, who you know are the least responsible for for this for for the for for the impacts and whose, you know, whose needs are greatest for this kind of support.
0: And this money presumably will help uh, countries adapt to climate change and also develop in ways uh, that aren't, say, reliant on coal. Are there any other baskets of issues uh, that you expect will come under heavy discussion in Glasgow?
1: Yeah, there there are a couple. There are still outstanding some negotiation issues from Paris having to do with how Countries account for how they achieve their NDCs, whether they're they're using so-called offsets, where countries pay for uh, uh, carbon reductions in in a, in a third country and then count those towards their own climate commitments, or if they don't count them. Figuring out how that all gets worked out has been has been a, has been a really tricky issue uh, that I think will hopefully be able to. Be, be resolved at this COP, but you know there, that does remain one of the last outstanding issues. And you know, again, I think it would be good being able to finalize that would, would, would be important for the process, again, just to, to, to put this to rest and to be able to move forward. Um, I think that in terms of really the big kind of tectonic questions are going to revolve around the US and China, the big questions around the US are whether the US is going to really be able to deliver on its uh, greenhouse gas reduction targets. I think, broadly speaking, it's the goal that President Biden set uh, for reducing uh, US emissions by 50 to 52% by 2030 has been widely praised. But everyone is waiting now to see what happens. It looks like he's going to go to Glasgow with a framework with $555 billion of climate-related funding in the in the reconciliation bill, he doesn't have it locked down yet. So mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of questions about that. It also has to do with questions about, you know, how the, the ability of the U.S. to be an enduring force for good in, inside the climate regime. I mean, we think we saw, you know, a year ago, President Biden hadn't been elected president. The U.S. was pulling out of the Paris Agreement, and the federal government for four years had been hostile to climate action domestically and globally. I think that one of the things that really matured and changed fundamentally during those four years, though, was the ability for the U.S. at a subnational level and the private sector, I think, did move forward substantially in those four years, and you actually end up with the U.S. with a track record of of, of heightened engagement on those levels. And you'll see that at the COP. I mean, the 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 number of governors who are going to be in Glasgow, the number of mayors, the kind of major private sector commitments those those weren't there uh, five years ago. I mean, so there that I think so. I think that is going to be a huge kind of demonstration of. Of of kind of of, of really long term commitment apart from the federal that that at the federal level that said the, what you need to do to get where we need to go and where the world needs to go it's going to require both and mm-hmm. so I think you're going to really see the Biden administration there in full force I mean President Biden's going personally to speak at the leader summit he has a dozen cabinet and otherwise cabinet level officials all going there on the ground. To try to, you know, to try to impress upon the world that they, you know, that they understand the urgency of the problem. The other piece, of course, is also on the climate finance. You know, again, President Biden has really stepped up in his ambition for how much the US can provide. I mean, he he at his leader summit, he pledged by 2024 to sort of ramp up climate finance to a level that was gonna be uh you know twice the peak. Uh, Obama-era level of climate finance. Then at the General Assembly uh, in September, President Biden agreed to double that again, bringing us up to, by 2024, uh, a commitment to to deliver $11.4 billion of funding. So these are big promises. And I think, again, uh, the world is, is, is excited about it. I mean, but... I think there's again the the question is can can they how do we build that kind of sense of trust that we're really going to deliver
0: on these things? Earlier, you know, you said the U.S. and China are obviously the two big players here. You just outlined what the U.S. may or may not be bringing to the table uh, in Glasgow. What's going on with regards to China? I know that uh, President Xi, for example, will not be attending in person. Is that significant? What can we expect from China's diplomacy in Glasgow? Well,
1: I think along with what the United States does, what China does, is going to be of the utmost importance, of the utmost significance on the, the the ability of this of Glasgow to succeed. Much much in the same way that the ability to meet the climate challenge depends ultimately on the world's two largest emitters, the U.S. and China, to to take the necessary steps to to slash their emissions, uh, to to bring to make to make the goals of the Paris Agreement reachable. Um, and, you know, and while I say the two largest emitters, I mean, we're at a point where the gap between us, or rather between China and the rest of the world, the U.S. included, is is growing. I mean, China, as of a couple of years ago, began emitting annually more greenhouse gas, gases than the whole developed world put together. So, and, and, and if you put on top of that the goals that the Europeans and now, you know, President Biden has set for the U.S. and others in Japan and Korea, and if, if those ambitions are met, that gap is going is is to widen. Now the, And of course, you know, that, and that's a huge challenge. And I think what we've seen, you know, which is very interesting over the past year, we, there have been some very, you know, uh, some very encouraging signs out of China and some worrying signs. Um, we've seen you know they continue to invest very heavily in a lot of clean energy deployment and electric vehicles. Uh, they continue to to you know to to do a lot of things to kind of develop their clean energy economy. They uh at, at um the General Assembly this year, uh they President Xi announced uh that they would halt their financing of overseas coal production of which they had been by far the world's largest state supporter of. Um, This was something that I don't think a lot of people, uh, although they'd been pressing China to do that, uh, that that really had had assumed that they would be willing to make such a commitment. So those are very significant. They also have set for themselves a a target of 2060 by which they will achieve so-called carbon neutrality which just means that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're to the extent you're, you're emitting emissions, you're you're also capturing a similar quantity of emissions through through agricultural practice and other other ways of capturing carbon, um, which is absolutely, you know, where they need to go. And to have you know President Xi to, to make such a commitment is not something people take lightly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and 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 they 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 have as a kind of marker on the path to that a commitment to peak their peak their overall emissions by 2030. That said, there's a lot that needs to happen between now and 2060. And they have not yet described and set forth a series of supporting targets and metrics that can give the world confidence that they are gonna, that they are, that they are tr- charting this course quickly enough. Right, I mean, this is something that, given what the trajectory of their emissions, they need to start cutting quickly. They need to start peaking well before you know 2030. They need to start demonstrating their energy sector is decarbonizing, that they're not adding new coal capacity right now. Because again, these are steps that are that are that are putting them they're pushing further away from that ultimate objective in those regards. So it's a complicated picture, and then you put on top of that the fact that. U.S. and China have such a compl- complicated and ch- difficult relationship right now, you know, bilaterally. Um, you know, other than, and I think it's interesting. I mean, you have, you know, this year, you know, in this far into the Biden administration, you know, Secretary Kerry, the, the special presidential envoy Kerry, um, you know, has has made, has you know, has been to China to meet with his counterparts a few times. Other than him, the only other high-level official who has gone to China from the entire Biden administration was was uh, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman for a single visit. So it's 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 a pretty interesting situation you have, and where the the U.S. is clearly on the China on the climate channel of the relationship. You know, made some efforts to try to draw them into this uh, process. In a way that that kind of harkens back to during the during President Obama years, when they were able to find ways to to really engage effectively bilaterally and in ways that really bolstered and made possible the Paris Agreement and the great the, the biggest, the bigger you know the biggest victory of the of the international community on climate change. This time, it's a much more challenging situation, and it's 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 just not clear, you know. How, what can be achieved bilaterally in this
0: place? And, and just to, to remind listeners, you know, before the Paris Agreement, uh, Obama and Xi came together and jointly made this pledge, that therefore lent political momentum and support to the Paris Agreement. Like one directly flowed into the other.
1: Absolutely, it was a, a year before the Paris Agreement was finalized. The U.S. and China came out, President Xi and President Obama, and it's just mm-hmm. I mean, hard to. Even imagine it was as recently as it was, stood by side by side, literally, and announced to the world that they would put in domestic reduction targets into an agreement. And for both countries, that was politically, you know, for the U.S., having China, the world's largest emitter, as part of the agreement in a way that they were not and taking on commitments in a way that they had not been under previous regimes, like the Kyoto Protocol, was essential to 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 the whole the whole the whole project, the whole architecture of that agreement, the ability of the US to participate. So once that happened and the rest of the world understood that, once, once that happened, that was the, you know, that was the the starting pistol. And, and to really signal to the world, there's an end game here. We can get to this agreement. And you know, a year later we had the Paris Agreement.
0: So that leads me to my last question, which is how do you measure success uh, of Glasgow? I mean, earlier you said, you know, at Paris, you can measure success by whether or not, you know, there was a Paris agreement or not. It was a very sort of clear outcome here. The like the outcome seems a little more like nebulous or a little little, like less um, intuitive. Like, so how would you measure define whether or not this meeting will become a success?
1: Yeah, I think that metric is going to be one that's going to be very frustrating for people to apply because it's not going to be quite so clear-cut. I mean, I because I, I think that um, the I mean, on a very base level, you know, you what you need is countries to come together. I mean, this is a big deal to get every country, every party to the Paris Agreement all to come and agree. On where what needs to happen next, right? So you need to ultimately have a process that, that itself holds together, right? That brings together the, the, the realities of what, what countries have and haven't done, what the major economies have and haven't done, what finance has and hasn't been delivered, what other what process has or hasn't been made in the negotiations. And to be able to wrap that up and to be able to say, given this situation given how far we've come and how far we still have to go here we are all determined to go forward together and we're we're, we're not we're we're not giving up and we're going we have a way we can show you how we're going to get there to the next steps so you're going to end up i think with a process and that alone is challenging you know i mean it can and it can become and will be i think quite acrimonious at different points right i mean there's questions about you have to re, you have to build a lot of trust in each other and in the system, and there has to be a lot of sense of solidarity um, among all countries to have to do that, I and mean, that's what makes you know meeting the climate challenge so hard. Uh, but I think if we can get there, if we can have that, leave leave Glasgow with some of that hope and determination with which we left Paris, that that would be a success.
0: Uh, well, Pete, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Uh, good luck out there and we'll be following all right thank you all for listening thank you to pete that was a very helpful curtain raiser for cop 26 and as i mentioned at the outset please do reach out to me if you're there on the ground in glasgow let me know what's going on what you're seeing what you're hearing what the mood is like i'd be interested and curious to learn from you all right we'll see you next time bye